Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another quarantine edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Koval. You, of course, are listening because of the platform WGN Radio. And today we have a really special guest in the Corner Store, someone who uh, is the publisher at the Chicago Reader, uh, an incredible journalist um, in her own right, and someone who is also a Hall of Famer, which I didn't know until you know you just poke around a little bit and you find out incredible things about people. But Tracy Bain is in the corner store. Tracy, hello and welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to do this. Yeah, no, vice versa. Glad to have you and excited that you are are with us. So thank you. You are uh, that's a good place to start to any. You you are a Hall of Famer. That's I'm not. That's not hyperbole. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, when you stay in one place for a very long time, people start to see you. Um, I've seen so many people that are deserving of of great honors and halls of fame. But um, because I've stayed in one place for so long, I've been really lucky and fortunate enough to be recognized later in my career with the Society of Professional Journalists Hall of Fame and the Women, the Association of Women Journalists Local um, Chicago Hall of Fame. Um, very early on, I got into the LGBT Hall of Fame um, before it became, uh, you know, a, a lot more well known in the early '90s when Mayor Daley Jr. Uh, first launched it, um, and that was a way to recognize people within the LGBT community. So, all three of those have been really tremendous honors for me, and uh, especially the journalism one of my peers. When I started my career, I wasn't. I was doing alternative journalism, so it wasn't very much respected. But I feel very much included in that community now. And, and why why did you say uh, when you were early in your career did you not feel respected? Well, respected, accepted by the way that I went into journalism. So I graduated with a journalism degree in 1984. And a lot, there was a gay press and a feminist press, a lot of underground press at the time, but not many people with journalism degrees went that route because oftentimes it would hurt your career. Um, especially going into gay media or feminist media, you would be pigeonholed into what you could do. So there wasn't a two-way street like there is now going between alternative media like African-American media and then going to the mainstream. It wasn't, it just wasn't done that much. And also in the gay press, you were considered kind of an activist journalist. If you were a gay reporter covering gay news, it's like, oh, that probably is not good. But it's like, well, do I want a homophobic straight person covering it? You know, there's no, I've always had this thing about, you know, there's no such thing as objectivity. And I, I talk about it a lot. And that's a perfect example of, well, I think that I was perfectly suited to cover gay issues and proved right away that I could cover the things that were controversial within our community because there's always been good good LGBTQ people and bad LGBTQ people and there's been people who have literally tried to kill who they are by killing other people. Um, it's been proven that a lot of hate crimes are committed uh, against gay people by people who are trying to fight something in themselves and when I started to cover serial killers in the gay community that was part of the part of the kind of consensus among a lot of the therapists out there that these were people who were actually homosexual and they were fighting against it. So I could cover the good and bad within my community just like other um, maybe ethnicities or women have to cover the good and bad within the communities they cover. Yeah, and so what, what made you want to tell some of these stories to begin with? I mean, why did you, you said you got a degree in 84, but why even prior to that, what what's, uh, kind of steered you toward journalism? Well, I don't think I ever wanted to be anything but a journalist because, and and it's my brother and sister did not go into this uh, this field, and not everybody that's raised by journalists goes into journalism. But I, from age ten on, from my earliest memories of what I want to be when I grow up, it's been a journalist. And my mother was uh, a journalist at the 
at some community papers in the kind of early 1960s, then went to the Chicago Tribune. Lasted a few years, but a lot of the, her women peers left the Tribune because they weren't allowed to cover serious news. They were the society beat. Um, she was at the Tribune during the 68 riots, but she soon left and she kind of carved a very alternative path. She went and worked for Bucky Fuller at Environment Inc. doing his uh, geodesic dome. She went to work for Dempsey Travis and worked on his book, Autobiography of Black Chicago, and also worked with the United Mortgage Brokers of America when they were fighting redlining. The United Mortgage Brokers of America was a black mortgage brokers association that Dempsey Travis was part of. And after that, she went and by the mid, by 1973, she was at the Chicago Defender. And that's where at age 10, I had my first published column. I did a kid's consumer column for a few issues in the Chicago Defender. Wow. Yeah. And they're so, they're online. You can find them in their archives. Um, Cause I wanted to make sure it wasn't a dream of mine. I just actually did do it. Um, and then, uh, she, so she was there 10 years. I would go down to the plant with her sometimes and just kind of do paste up and layout of the columns. Cause it was daily at the time. She was always at work. So the best place to see my mother was to go with her to the Chicago Defender when I was 10 or 11 years old. And then she was there about 10 years and then did freelance after that. And then my stepfather, who she met at the Tribune, he lasted 29 years within that system. Um, but he knew that his gay friends there, because he was pretty cool about it. My parents were had a lot of gay friends. But he knew for me, I wouldn't fit in. He knew that because I was openly gay, his friends were not openly gay to their bosses, that it would be a different road for me. Um, and so I saw my mom work in African-American media and other smaller media. And I thought, well, that's probably a safer path for me if I want to stay and do what I love and not be forced out of the profession. So that's what I did. I, I had great role models in both mainstream and alternative. And I, I gravitated towards the alternative. Really, I mean, I don't know that I could have ever fit into the Tribune, but certainly even if I had gotten a job, it probably would have lasted a short period of time because I would have wanted to do social justice type stories. And and at, at Gay Life newspaper and then co-founding Winnie City Times, I got to write about stories I wanted to. And the obviously HIV AIDS crisis was paramount, violence against community, the push for the gay rights ordinance. It was an incredible time to be a journalist covering the gay community in Chicago. Yeah, well, of course, yeah, that, that time is, I mean, you, you in some ways like begin to help to usher in a kind of journalism that was not being done at the time, right? I mean, the, the, it was, it was the, the, the mainstream reports about um, HIV AIDS were all over the place. And, you know, you helped to, I think, bring in a different perspective and a different narrative. Yeah, our team at, at uh, Gay Life and Windy City Times and gay papers across the country were the only place you could really find quote-unquote objective coverage of HIV AIDS, meaning we weren't judging people who were getting it. We were trying to inform them and we were trying to inform the people who didn't have it um, about testing opportunities as well as prevention. There was so little known about it in 84 when I started. Um, They had really just named it AIDS. It had been called gay-related immune deficiency and then it became AIDS. There wasn't any treatment, any significant treatment for many, many years, but AZT even was a little bit off. Um, ACT UP was in its early formation, it was something else in Chicago, and then by 87, it was act up. Um, all sorts of things, uh, you know, as a young journalist, it really was like being in a war zone. I would take people's photos, and then that would be the obituary photo I would use two weeks later. And, and in many cases, um, I particularly remember a few of the guys that I would take photos of would have a gallows humor about it and say, you know, Tracy, use this, take this photo and use this. And one in particular stands out is Robert Ford from Thing Magazine. 
Um, he died in the nineties and, um, I went to his house. I don't know if you remember Thing magazine, but it was a zine for the black queer community that Robert Ford did. And it was really an important for us, by us, early, um, gay press really. And he was an amazing, sweet man. And I went to his funeral and they almost shut out everything about who he really was. And it was such a it was such a loss for our whole community um and to see him also then further closeted um in that service so what we did after that is i had outlines newspaper by that point and outlines um held a meeting at uh a, a gay bar on halsted street uh the warehouse i think it was and we said it was all african-american community and we said you know robert Ford's passing and the loss of thing magazine is a big gap in the community we would be here to support people who would like to start a black queer zine again, um, or Outlines newspaper can start one, and we will hire only African-American queer people to run it, um, and we won't control it. And so the vote was 100% for Outlines to start a black queer publication. So we did, right around 1995, um, start one called Black Lines, um, and it ran for about eight or nine years, and about six months after that, the Latino community came and said, hey, we need a publication. So we did a publication called En La Vida. Uh, eventually they merged into another publication and folded because there was no support for gay media hardly. And then for sure there wasn't support for black and Latino uh, gay media. And by then the internet was, uh, this was like early 2000s, the internet was there so that at least it provided some uh, way to get the word out in different ways. And, and outlines the way to say times we're always covering those communities. It's just when you have a special publication, you can do more. So I miss those immensely. I, I'm one of the proudest things in my career is doing Black Lines newspaper. And my mom, my mom, there was a one year anniversary party for Black Lines, uh, and it was at the DuSable Museum. And my mom was there helping pour the punch and everything. And she was so proud of me because she cared so much about racial justice issues. And I think it was the proudest thing she ever saw me do. And she died a short time later. Oh wow! So I have this great memory of her at the DuSable Museum saying how proud she was of me. And this really continued her legacy of what she had tried to do in covering Martin Luther King in the 60s and working at the Defender. So it's it was a great honor to do that publication for as long as it ran. Yeah. No. And, and you said I want to I want to see if this is you just said um, that it one of the first meetings was held at the warehouse. You know, Halsted was a warehouse on Halsted just kind of north of Lake Street. Um, there not, was a big old there was a big old generator. I'm sorry, it was gen- a generator. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. The warehouse was more like West Loopish. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, the yeah. generator. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Frankie Knuckles sometimes hung there, and it was a great big old dance bar. It was a fantastic place. Right. So you were around then that, but you were. I mean, even to your point right there. I mean, you were around that kind of early house scene in Chicago. Yeah, Frankie Knuckles was just the sweetest, sweetest guy. Um, I don't think Chicago, Chicago did recognize his importance, but I don't think some people really understood how impactful he was worldwide um, until after he passed and and there were all these tributes and everything. Um, But I just remember him spinning at various parties, including Council Blues Pride uh, related parties and, and at the Gay Games opening ceremony at Soldier Field. He was out there spinning for the athletes when they were out there in the heat baking for two hours. Um, he was just such a trooper. He gave so much of his time and talents to our community. We were so lucky to have him. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and and you, of course, you mentioned the gay games. You yourself are an athlete. I'm currently not. 
I don't know what you be, when you become a former athlete, but okay. I'm definitely a former athlete. But I played I played soccer for 25 years. Yeah, and including um, I was uh, when I was in high school, I was on a traveling team because my school didn't have women's soccer. Um, but that traveling team, right after I graduated high school, went to Germany, West Germany at the time, um, and played eight games at, uh, in Hamburg and Hanover. And our coach had escaped East Germany, and that's why we went. So his four daughters came with us, and they went to West Berlin and visited family and, and had a good side trip during our two weeks. We won all of our games. This was seven years before the first Women's World Cup. I was starting right half back. Um, it was fantastic. To me, sports and Title IX are a reason I have the kind of life I have because I had team sports that gave me confidence and winning and losing, how to lose. Um, right. In sports in general. So I also played softball for a very long time. I kind of retired around age 40 when I started working on the gay games, ironically, huh. just for time purposes. And also I valued my hands and I was a goalie by then. So I was like, I need to be able to write for a longer period of time. Then if I continue to play goalie, I'm going to have hands that won't work anymore. My mom had rheumatoid arthritis. So I was like, I better stop now. So I worked on the games for about seven years as a volunteer. I was co-vice chair and was in charge of the soccer section as well as fundraising and government work it was a really amazing time i can't believe it's been 14 years since they were here but it was we had opening ceremony at soldier field closing at wrigley field um and then we had 32 sports across the city and suburbs all the way up to crystal lake um 11 000 athletes and and cultural participants from, from more than 70 countries around the world wow. and we ultimately broke even which is unheard of in the olympics world so we didn't have to build new stadiums. We just had a wonderful, incredible thousands of people volunteering and making it happen. Um, and it actually, I hate to say this, but it inspired Mayor Daly to do the Olympics bid. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I'm glad he was inspired by us, and I'm equally glad that he lost. Yes. <laughs> uh, that oh, that would have crushed the city yeah. uh, very, very badly. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You, you, you mentioned you mentioned earlier you had role models both in the, the queer press and... Um, the mainstream press. Who, who are some? Who I mean, obviously your mom. Um, who else? I mean, Chicago is a town of great newspaper writers, and uh, I'm curious about the the writers, but also you know outside of the writers, some of the organizers, even outside of the newspaper space in the city, beyond who have uh, who you who you've looked toward or continue to look toward. You know, it's interesting since I grew up in a journalism family, um, my, and my parents were partiers they were kind of hippie partiers, they would host huge weekend-long parties at our house when I was a kid and up till I was a teenager. And so I got to meet a lot of these kind of icons in Chicago journalism, some still with us today, like Michael Sneed, um, and some like John Van, who recently passed away, Ron Kutulik, um, Bernie Judge. Um, I got to see them as people. In some ways, it was actually educational because I didn't have them on pedestals. I actually saw them as the people they were, flawed as they were, meaning there was a lot of stuff going around in the 70s. <laughs> and I kind of had reverse role models because a lot of a lot of that era of journalists, and I'm not saying the names I just said fall into this category, but a, a lot of them were very troubled. And uh, a lot of them had a lot of substance issues. My mother had herself had substance issues. So I also saw that I didn't, I wanted to be a different kind of journalist. I wanted to be one that, uh, could follow my own path. I wasn't going to be controlled by some corporate system. And I also, was, I, I literally had one drink in my life. Um, so I, I decided that 
they were my reverse role models on their personal lives and my career role models um, in, in doing the work. And um, that, so in the journalism mainstream, I, there were some really strong women that came out of the 70s mainstream media. Many of them didn't last too long, like my mother, because of the way it went. But others, like Sheila Wolf, who was a longtime Tribune employee, um, uh, and Elaine Soderbergh. So I saw these really strong women that um, I admired uh, through, my, through my parents' network. And then in the queer space, when I first got into gay journalism, I was 21 years old at Gay Life, and the community was very small then. It was a small town in a big city. In many ways, it still is. But there were just a few hundred people that were willing to openly use their name and be identified as, as LGBTQ or gay and lesbian at the time. And transgender was much smaller community then. So I, I was welcomed with open arms from some older generation activists that I really, at the time, didn't realize how appreciative I should have been to have known those people, as well as people that were my age or just slightly older who were, had HIV AIDS and were near death and who shared their stories with me. And I, I, I think my motivation for staying and not getting burned out all these years is I know all those people didn't even get a chance. Many of them didn't even make it into the 90s. Um, and yet I was, I was fortunate enough to be able to tell their stories in life and also be able to write their obituaries. Obituaries are something that um, a lot of people see as kind of a training ground for journalists. But to me, they're you are, you are tasked with, in 500 words or 5,000 words, whatever you have, to tell the whole story of somebody's life. And um, it, I have never gotten away from that, meaning they never seem routine to me. I never write them ahead of time. Like some journalists are assigned to write the obits of people before they die. I'm like, no. Even though when I've known uh, longtime gay activists that are near death, and people say, oh, you know, someone will say, oh, can you write that now just in case? I'm like, no. But you know what I can do? As soon as I hear, I can probably write it in an hour because it's in my head and I know I know where to get the quotes. I've interviewed a lot of these longtime folks on ChicagoGayHistory.org. It's a website I did about 10 years ago that just interviewed a couple hundred people. Um, about 15, 20 percent of them have passed away since. And and so it's like from that day in 1984, I started and I was already starting to write these hate crime stories and obits and things. I've still that's the stuff that's the biggest honor to do, right? I like doing a lot of the other stuff. I'm not really an investigative journalist. I've done some of that, but I like the storytelling. Like, obviously, that's what, what you love. Um, and even this posthumous storytelling. Like, like that's your chance to summarize that person's life. It's a lot of pressure, um, but it's also really an honor to do it. Yeah, and I mean, part of what I hear is that you just have a real deep love for people. Uh, and 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 you that that shows up in your work that 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 you know that's every day for you. Where where does that where does that love come from? Well, I, I think because my parents raised us with like a herd of people. Like we weren't quite a commune, but we sort of were because our house was big enough that we always had crashers here, like of all sorts. Some people at the very end of their ropes and lives and other people who were just struggling for a short period of time, whether they were artists or other journalists. My mom literally was just like collecting people her whole life. Um, and I'm not like that. Like my sister and I often think, because we're in our family home, wow, we don't know how they had that kind of energy or patience to deal with the kind of people that they were surrounded by all the time. But my mom, my mom needed that stimulation. Like it, it was a validation of who she was and what she wanted to be. Um, 
but for me, whenever I, the closest I've ever come to burning out on, and I would have to say the gay community, not necessarily journalism, is after the gay games. Because it took about a year to fundraise, to finish off everything. And, and at the end of that cycle, I was just like, you know what, I hate this community. <laughs> it's, you know, it's full of people that uh, complain, but don't do. And, you know, it was, it was a distorted view, right? Like I had, there were a lot of people that wa- almost wished us to fail with yeah. the gay game. That, that's the and, worst, worst of any community, is, right? right. That's, that's everywhere. Yeah, that crabbing, that circular firing squad, all of that. So I was just like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I'm going to do something. I'm going to go work on animal rights. And then I immediately said, you know what? Any community I would go work in is going to have this. Yes. So what I did was I said, okay, why, why, do, why did I get into this and why do I want to continue? So that's when I did the ChicagoGayHistory.org site. It, it, I was just like, okay, who, why am I here? It's for the people. So I immediately set out, I, I like, it was amazing. I just set out amazing Excel spreadsheets and I picked like hundreds of people that I wanted to interview for an hour each. And in, and, and um, I literally had a, I hired a filmmaker cause I didn't know what I was gonna ultimately do with it. it. It ended up being a website, not a film, but I would interview sometimes six people a day, like back to back to back. They were sitting and I was just like crazy. It was like a machine. And my dad, my birth father, uh, my stepfather, my mother passed away, but my birth father lives with us now, and he's a photographer. So he would take the photos, the still photos, while I'm there, the people were waiting for the videos. So over that summer, I did over 170 interviews in three months. And, and, and then I came out of it. And I came out of that fog, and I was, like, ready to go again. Right. And so it was weird. I had to go back deep into the work in order to find what I loved about the work and not let the naysayers and the people that are always going to be negative about what you're doing because they're, they're risk, they're risk averse. And so from the gay games and from other projects I've done, I realized I have to surround myself with people that aren't, they don't necessarily have to think like me, but they have to be willing to take risks and not, and if they're afraid that they're not going to hold me back from the risks um, because, you know, because of fear of failure. And, you know, so Yes, I, it's the people that have kept me going, whether that's informal mentors, because I don't know if I've ever had a formal mentor, but informal mentors I've kind of watched and been motivated by, um, or just in doing a story about somebody. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate that that, that hits home, too, so I appreciate that. Uh, I, I want to talk about your work at The Reader, because this is, I mean, how, how long have you been the publisher? It's a, it's a relatively recent post, Yeah. Oh my God, it is so crazy that I'm publisher of the reader. I have to say, <laughs> I, I still don't believe it. Like, I'm thinking it's some kind of fever dream. Um, in 2018, um, I got a call from the union, uh, the writers' union at the Chicago Reader, because a deal that had been announced a couple months earlier was starting to fall through because there wasn't someone to kind of do the everyday work, like the really dig down and, and even just do sales, do something on the business side. Everybody that was left at the reader at that point was on the editorial side. It was a union staff and nothing else. The, the salespeople at the Sun-Times were kind of selling the reader, but it was really just, you know, it wasn't the high priority uh, that it, it needed. It needed full attention. So um, I it kind of within two, three days of that call, I was in front of the two investors that ended up buying the reader, um, Elsie Hickenbottom and Leonard Goodman. I was in front of their people. I didn't even meet Elsie and Len for a while longer. But um, within 24 hours of meeting the representatives, we had a deal. They offered me the position, the publisher, and uh, we kind of negotiated with the Sun-Times for another two or three weeks. 
of figuring out space and computers and all that kind of stuff. And by October 1st, uh, it was done of 2018. I was working remotely as publisher while Esley Higginbottom built out an office in one of his buildings uh, in Bronzeville. And then around early, around mid-November, I think, we moved everybody from the Sun-Times offices to the new space. And it's been a, a rebuilding of trust. A lot of the staff that was there for years has gone through so many different owners and publishers that a lot of my job was just convincing them I was I was on their side and that I loved the reader. I was there to try to save it, not to try to kill it. Um, and go- going through this COVID crisis, I think, has really uh, shown them that I'm trying to work as hard as possible. So even when we make tough decisions, like we just made a tough decision to go bi-weekly, that it's actually to save the people's jobs. And all the other crazy projects we've done, from coloring books to T-shirts to masks, has all been about creating some kind of revenue stream so that I can meet payroll. And um, I think there's a long way to go. The lucky thing is we have our 50th anniversary next year, so we're going to be making a lot of plans to, to capitalize on that and take a lot of looks back at the amazing work and the amazing journalists that got their start at the Reader over the last 50 years. So it's a, a you know it's a it's a really big shoes to fill. But at the same time, I feel like I've been in uh, the minor. I don't want to call Winnie C. Times minor leagues at all. But if, if there's some kind of analogy I can use, it's that I was in this smaller footprint location, learning a lot of the ups and downs and getting confidence, getting connections to be ready for something like this that I wasn't even looking for. Um, so it just it, it was a great opportunity. And I'm I'm really trying to do my very best. And it's a really great team. Um, and, I, and my Woody State Times crew, because I still own Woody State Times. They run it day to day. I don't have anything to do with it. They're most of them have been with me twenty years, so they they don't they don't need me in the mix. Uh, I'm just there to to the buck stops with me if there's any problems. Right. Well, and you've created. Uh, all, I mean, you, the reader is part of the Chicago Public Media Alliance, and you just ran a very successful fundraising campaign to bring dollars and resources to over forty independent. Uh, publications around the, the, the Chicagoland area. Um, so you, you remain building these spaces of, of solidarity with, with, with uh, different communities in different groups. How, how, like, how do you envision your publisher hat um, at the helm of the reader? And, and what does the future then look like for the reader? Um, you know, I know, I know you just made this hard decision to go bi-weekly, but, but you know, in, in this moment particularly, it, it seems, you know, the reader is well poised to be an important voice, but also an important site to build uh, some community. Yeah, the, um, we're definitely focusing a lot on the digital future. We're going to have a whole new website design, hopefully before the end of the year. And we're also in our application phase for the 501c3 status for the reader. Um, so the last last year, soon after I took over, I knew that one of the things I'd always been dreaming of is some kind of an alliance of community media. And at Winnie City Times, I didn't have as large a platform. So as soon as I took over at the reader, I started meeting with foundations and started talking to both those journalism foundations as well as foundations that don't fund journalism about the need for more resources into community-based media in order for stories to get told well from authentic community voices. So we, we launched the Chicago Independent Media Alliance as a project of the reader last year. A young woman um, that was trained out in City Bureau and CTW came on board, Yasmin Dominguez, and she started reaching out and gathering um, contacts and we do surveys. And last fall, we introduced the foundation world to all this rich, diverse 
sets of uh, sites. Some of them are online only, some are nonprofits, some are print, some are podcasts, some are radio. It's a really big range. Uh, right now we have 62 members. It's free. Um, and we're trying to figure out how do we get new money into community media. And it could be that we're just making sure that all these outlets know where to apply for grants. That's been you know just information sharing uh, through our Slack channel. Um, and then we've also gotten some small grants uh, for census coverage and for some advertising related to the census. And the clients always pick who they want to be in. Sometimes it benefits 25 of the outlets, sometimes less. But then COVID struck. And we did a survey immediately of our members. And it, it clearly showed that, especially those that are advertising-based and even supporter-based, um, we're going to see a drastic drop. The reader saw a 90% drop in revenues immediately. And uh, so we went into emergency mode and did a project that we were going to try to spend many, many, many months planning for next year. And that was a joint fundraiser. And so we had a programmer work for three weeks creating a website, stagechicagomedia.org. 43 of the 62 outlets opted into the campaign. And uh, I was going to be happy with a pretty low bar of money, like maybe 60000 overall. But it turned out we were able to get $60,000 from foundations matching money. And then we raised $104,000 from individual donors. Over 1,000 people gave. And the, the best lesson out of it was, first of all, pilot something. You know, you can spend many months and then you don't learn the lessons. And then you got to, you know, so we, we learned a lot how we would do it different. But what we also learned, and I was surprised by, was that two-thirds of the people that gave individually, they gave and gave an amount and said, just spread, spread it among everybody. I don't need to pick somebody. <laughs> um, and then a third of it went directly to outlets. So you could pick an outlet and say, I'm going to give 50 bucks or I'm going to give 20 bucks over here. But so many people just said, you know what? I'm giving a hundred bucks. You just give it to everybody. Um, and the average donation was a hundred. So I think that shows there's different kinds of money. And I, and that's why I wanted to do this work. There's different people will give to collaborations differently than they'll give to individual projects. So they don't cannibalize each other. They bring in new resources and money. Some of the foundations that gave, they gave anonymously because they don't normally give to journalism projects. So it's not money that we would have gotten at the reader anyway. It's new money and it tested it out and I think can be much bigger in 2021 if we can get even more outlets to buy in on it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and thank you for, you know, helping to lead in that work of just bringing so many disparate communities together, particularly in a city like Chicago that remains forcibly uh, segregated, you know, so that's that's really great and important work. Obviously, what 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 for you? Like, what what is the role of the reader in in times like this? I'm thinking both in terms of COVID, but also in terms of the last four weeks. And and you know, what what? How does? I mean, you're right. There's no there's no uh, real objectivity when it comes to journalism. So how does the reader lean in to to these moments? Well. We both lean in internally to make sure that our policies and our, our hiring and all the things that we're doing um, match our what we cover. So soon after we took over, we changed the capitalizations at the reader to capitalize black, brown, and indigenous. Um, that's something the papers I've been worth with since have been doing since 1995. So New York Times is 25 years behind us. Um, but the reader, we did do that with not a heavy lift. We gave Juneteenth as a paid holiday. We gave extra PTO to employees that were feeling extra stress the last couple months. Um, so that was more internal work. Um, the external is to make sure that our that we're covering the community the way the reader covers it, um, and that is through um, a wide range of sources with a definitely a progressive bent. 
Um, uh, Maya Dupasova did an amazing cover story on police union history to give our readers uh, something beyond the 500 words about the badness of police unions. She gave it a historical context of where they came from and black police unions, the role they played. So that was really fantastic. And, and the in-depth coverage around both COVID and the racial justice fight and the police brutality um, has, has really been amazing. We're not a we're not a place to go for the breaking news like you'll get in a in a daily newspaper or a place like the Tribe, which is covering the protests um, in, as they're going on. We might be someone who then looks more in depth in a week at, at that. Um, so as we go bi-weekly, we're also hoping to do really creative digital storytelling. Um, we've always been a very, we have a lot of illustration and great photography. So um, some uh, there was a photographer that did a series on funeral home directors during the time of COVID and was a wonderful photo spread. So the editors, Karen Hawkins and Sujay Kumar, they're co-editors in chief, they do a fantastic job of working with our team of staff, but also more than 50 freelancers that write something or take photos or write or, or draw during any one month. Yeah, amazing. Well, uh, Tracy Bain, it is Bain, it is a, a pleasure to speak with you. Um, writer, publisher, organizer, visionary, Hall of Famer, uh, former athlete, I guess at this point. Um, but yo, Tracy, where, where's the best way for people to stay in tune with, with all that you are doing and, and, and of course, all that the reader is doing? Um, www.chicagoreader.com. And then if people want to support or buy some of the fun coloring books and cookbooks, um, you go to chicagoreader.com slash support. Um, reader has great social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we have uh, Janae um, Green is our social media director. She's fantastic. So really, we're online everywhere. Um, they can pick up copies of the paper at almost uh, 1,200 locations across the city and suburbs. Our next issue is out July 9th. Um, we're back to a full press run next week. A lot of the places we delivered were closed for a long time. So we're back up to a full press run next week. In fact, we're going to be doing extra now since we're bi-weekly. So you can find us almost anywhere. Um, you can find me at tbame at chicagoreader.com. Great. Tracy, thank you so much for being in the Corner Store. Thanks so much. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.